this podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. It's about to be a fun ride. Follow along, watch as we slide. Paranormal just hit the lights. Goosebumps all through the night. Mixing just a little bit of twain. That girl sure can't do a thing. Together, hillbillies go insane. Laugh so hard it'll hurt your brain. Podcast you won't ever change. These two here, they got the recipe. Sat on back and listen in to some of our darkest mysteries, eh? Welcome to Hillbilly Horror Stories. And now here's your host. Jerry and Tracy Polly and their dog Ninja. What are you doing here? Don't you know Jerry and Tracy live here? They're coming. They hear you. Ah, they're here. Hey guys, Jerry and Tracy back for episode 86 of Hillbilly Horror Stories. Of course, I'm Jerry because I just said that. You did. And and I'm joined by, what was your name, ma'am? My name is Tracy Pauly. (laughs) So nice to meet you. We... We are so excited to be back. It seems like we were just here a couple of days ago. And, and we were. We were, yeah. It was. <laughs> we hope you guys enjoyed your little bonus episode that we did. We've already gotten some good reviews on that. Keith Linder was a fantastic guest. Yeah. So very he was fun. great. And tonight, of course, we are going to do our second revisit. We did the revisit just a couple of weeks ago on uh, Bobby Mackey's. And now we're going to revisit the Robert the Doll story and... I try to dig up some new information and take a different twist on it, so hopefully you enjoy this one. Yeah, hope you do. Obviously, before we jump into the stories, we like to always give thanks to all of our military and civil servants all over the world, no matter what country you support. God bless every one of you. And we'd also like to say a special prayer for the firefighters in West Virginia. Virginia. Yes, Um, it's such a sad thing, you know, these these guys, volunteers, guys and gals, volunteer their services, and unfortunately, their fire truck uh, wrecked, and I think it was two of the firefighters were killed, and they were actually on their way to a fatality, which already involved three people. So I just want to say, you know, we're praying for you guys. This is such a terrible, terrible loss. But we do appreciate you guys so much and everything you do for us. Yeah, we we realize that you never know when heading out to something as simple as just an automobile accident, how you're putting your life on the line without even realizing it someday. Right, right. But we we love and appreciate every one of you, and please please be safe and take care of yourselves. A couple of iTunes reviews. Oh, let me rephrase that. One One. iTunes review. One. One (laughs) is the loneliest number. And I had to work more this week because I didn't have time to just, you know, I could just read one, one review. <laughs> but we love that review. And that review came from Deb1569. Thank and, you, darling. And, and why we love do, you. Why do you love that review? Because it says, love Tracy's laugh. <laughs> so we get one review the entire week and it says, love Tracy's laugh. That's all that it says. 
So, Thank you. That means a lot to me. Now, on a, on more positive notes, um, Patreon supporters, we had four new ones this Great. week. Teresa Rowland, thank you so much. Thank you. Melody Harrison, thank you so much. Jackie Moss actually edited hers and actually uh, switched to a higher tier. Oh, thanks, honey. Thank you. And I hope I pronounced this like it. It's spelt like Kariston Cooper. But I could see how some people may say that's Kristen, if you say it that way. But I think it's Kariston Cooper. So. Yeah, I love that name. It's really pretty. It is pretty. Thank you guys so much for all of your patronage. Thank you. We appreciate you and love you. And as usual, we are getting really close to that time, the first of the month, where we put out our Listener Stories episode. So if you guys have a listener story that you would like to tell on our Patreon episode, send us a message and we will get in touch with you because we will probably be doing those this week. Oh, yes. Because the first is what, Sunday? Easter. Yeah, Easter. Easter, bok bok. Yep, so Easter, we have a Patreon episode coming out and a regular episode on the same day. And, and, Easter and April Fool is on the same day. What the heck? Four things happen in that day. That's crazy. Yep, so there's... I have a feeling that a lot of Easter egg planters are going to be having a lot of fun with the Easter egg hunters. You feel me? What are you saying? Because it's going to be April Fool, fool joke, and they're going to act like they hit Easter eggs, and then, in fact, they really didn't. It's like, you remember when we was watching that uh, episode of Parks and Recreation where they were out there all looking for the Easter eggs and nobody could find them? And oh, it, and she said, because I didn't hide them? <laughs> yeah, the, she, said, she said, so-and-so was in charge of hiding them. And he's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so this ought to be an interesting holiday for sure. Should be fun. Should be fun. It will be fun. I can't remember Easter ever being on April Fool's Day. Gosh, me either. I can't keep up with when Easter is. I can't remember what the protocol is for what Sunday it is. But, I mean, sometimes it's in April. Sometimes no, it's in you can't. May. I mean, one year it was on my sister's birthday, and it's the 14th of April. Yeah, so I don't so. know. But I had to go look. And I'm sure somebody's going to write me and tell me. But I, I mean, remember, you just can't. I, well, I remember it's on a certain, certain Sunday of the year or something. That's what throws everything off, but. I mean, it's got to do with, obviously, the religious. Yeah. Uh, but I'm saying, okay, I'll just get off of it because I don't know. And <laughs> people will start pointing my mistakes out like they did on the Tower of London episode. So let's let's jump into that real quick because when it comes to stories such as supernatural, paranormal, that type of thing, a lot of that is subjective. So you can't really say, oh, they didn't see this ghost or they didn't. It's all our opinion. But when we're dealing in actual facts, those are facts. Yes, of course. And a couple a couple of facts that we, uh, well, let me say I miss put out there on the Tower of London episode, I wanted to address and, and give uh, thanks to the people who pointed out our mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. We love our that. Mistakes. So the first one, uh, we got to go back into uh, Anne Boleyn. Now, this wasn't as much of a... Um, me being wrong as I probably said it wrong. Mm -hmm. What I said was that King Henry VIII wanted a male heir to the throne and she could no longer have kids, so that's why he put her to death. And the reality of it is she could have kids. Uh, Matter of fact, she was, uh, I think, Queen Elizabeth was her daughter, so she had had 
already had a daughter, but she had had several miscarriages. So when I said that she couldn't have kids, I didn't mean that she wasn't fertile. I'm just saying that Mm -hmm. they weren't having any success having a male kid because of several miscarriages and stuff. So that's what I meant by she couldn't have kids. So I could have probably put that a different way, Mm -hmm. maybe like I just did. Yeah. Rather than just saying, but I was trying to uh, move along. And the next one obviously had to do with, we were talking about... um, Sir Walter Riley, and he had the situation with uh, Bessie where he was uh, married to her, and I said she was a maid of honor, and I said the queen uh, was irritated because uh, she really liked Sir Walter Riley, didn't like the fact that he got married, and I made the comment that she was already married, she shouldn't care. The reality was she was not married, um, and Bessie wasn't her maid of honor she was like a lady in waiting, I guess, for mm-hmm. when that happened. So I was wrong on that aspect completely. And I made an assumption because the the one article that I did read said that she was a maid of honor. When I think maid of honor, I think at a wedding. So I made the assumption and that was my fault. Hmm. So there we go. You I made was wrong. an assumption. That's surprising. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I was wrong and I have no problem making corrections. When yeah. We thank you for that information. Anyway, we love it. We, and I especially love when Jerry's yeah, wrong. Yeah, I started to say, I didn't love it. I'm sure you loved it. <laughs> so let's get into Robert the Doll. Not into, because that's... That's gross. It could be some kind of fetish. I don't know. No. But I'm not getting into Robert the Doll. Okay, so let's talk about the story of Robert the Doll. So we're going to start off by me painting a picture, which is good because the main character was an artist. So it's Oh, like, okay, good. Yeah. <laughs> since the surprise in your voice, since mm-hmm. you had no clue. Yeah. All right, so everybody close your eyes, unless you're driving, and just think. So it's the middle of the night. You got a 10-year-old child. He awakens to find this stuffed doll staring at him from the foot of his bed. His glassy eyes, expressionless face is just unnatural. This is the child's best friend during the day, but now the child is paralyzed with fear. Across the house, the child's mother is abruptly wakened by her child's screams and sounds of furniture being overturned. She rushes into the room, panic-stricken, only to find the door locked. On the other side of the door, she can hear this sinister giggle and a commotion going on. She hears her son calling out to her, begging to be rescued. She finally gets the door to open. She finds her son in a fetal position in the bed. His room's destroyed. There's a doll sitting on the bed. The little boy, visibly shaken, can only whisper, Robert did it. All right, you can open your eyes now. Man, I was totally into that. (laughs) I saw every bit of it. (laughs) Look, it's not uncommon for, for kids to have imaginary friends. Most kids do. It's definitely not uncommon for you to blame their imaginary friends for doing stuff that you wasn't supposed to do. Like like when I wrote on a lamp when I was like six years old, even though I was the only one in the house that could write as far as the kids go. And I blamed my imaginary friend. Uh, they weren't falling for it, though. I was pretty stupid. Mm, I thought you said you wrote on a lamp. I'm like, what I the heck? Wrote. Wrote. Oh, okay. Look, this is what kids do. They have imaginary friends. They try to stay out of trouble. So they say, whoever did it. Most parents, they usually kind of dismiss this because saying, you know, hey, their child's got a great imagination or something of that, you know, nature. Uh, 
But what really happens when your imaginary friend, or in this case, a doll, begins to torment the child and terrorize anybody who lives in the household? This is the story of Robert the Doll. Wow, that was deep. You like that? I was. <laughs> I did like that. So, look, we, we did this before. This is one. This is the third episode of Hillbilly Horror Stories. If you go back to Ricky and I did, uh, I don't have to tell everybody. If you listened to it, it was a little crude. Um, there were some jokes in it that we will not rehash tonight. But we did kind of glance over it and not get as much into the story, which is what we're hoping to do tonight. If you listen to that version, we told basically one legend. And I'll gloss over that tonight so you can hear what that legend was. But what I hope to do is just like with the Bobby Mackey deal is get into more of the facts. So are we ready to get this thing rolling? Let's go. All right. So let's talk about the legend. The legend of Robert's dog goes something like this. In 1900, when Robert Eugene Otto's mother was about four months pregnant, she sent her husband to the Bahamas to bring back four servants uh, to bring back to Key West, Florida, which is where their home was, to obviously be servants. Servants? Yeah. Well, so that makes sense. So yeah, I knew you was on top of it. Mm-hmm. Apparently, her husband took a few liberties when with the servants because one of them was pregnant <gasps> when they got back. Ooh, that dog. Yeah. <laughs> Mrs. Otto was... Not pleased, to say the least, and she locked the pregnant servant uh, in an outhouse, and she kept her there for the duration of her pregnancy. Some people said nine months. I got a feeling it would have been less than that because she, Must, yeah. yeah, she was already pregnant when she got there. Well, it's not her know. fault. So she locks her in this outhouse. She would only feed her once a day, bread and water. The servant has the baby, but it died soon after from malnutrition. Oh man. Miss Otto then released the servant, but then forced her to start caring for her new baby, Robert Eugene Otto. That's not nice. Well, it's not, but the servant fell in love with Robert. She raised him just like she would her own kid, and I I would think that if she lost her kid and now has this baby that she can raise, then she probably, it was a good replacement for her. She raised the child so much as her own that she even breastfed him. I had a feeling you were going to say that. No. When Robert was four years old, there's an event that took place that would change everything for him. His entire life would be hinged on this event. See, Miss Otto walked into the backyard one night, and she witnessed these four servants from the Bahamas practicing Santeria. Now, if you remember, we talked about Santeria being basically mm-hmm. like a blend of different religions, but most people will think of it more like a voodoo-type ritual. Mm-hmm. This ritual involves cutting off the heads of chickens and stuff like that, and that's kind of what she walked out on. She starts seeing them doing stuff with chickens and stuff like that, and she just flipped out. She demanded that all these servants would be sent back to the Bahamas. Well, Robert's nanny was heartbroken because she's four years now, basically raised this kid mm-hmm. and been around this family. She felt like that she was completely being scorned, was being mistreated, and she wanted to, I guess, get a little bit of revenge on the family. So she made a doll to get the Robert. Now, Robert used to wear a sailor suit all the time, and Robert also had a stuffed animal that was a little lion. So this doll was made about 
little over three foot tall, which you can imagine at four years old, that's about the same size mm-hmm. as Robert. So it was life size. She had a sailor suit on it and she had a little stuffed lion that it was holding. So it was like a perfect replica of Robert. So she was doing the ritual with the other guys? Yeah, well, I don't know if they were guys or, or females. Whatever, I just but, know they were four. Yeah, she was, she was part it? of it. That was okay. their that was their religion. Okay, gotcha. But I guess Miss Otto hadn't been a part of any of this stuff until she just happened to walk out and see it, and mm-hmm. it was like a dose of reality for her. Now, she made this doll, but supposedly she put a voodoo-type curse on the doll. And it's like I said, that's the legend of how Robert inherited the doll. Now, there's lots of stories about how Robert actually got the doll because the story's been passed down from family member to family member through several, several years. It was actually given to Robert by his grandfather after a trip that he made to Germany. Now, if you remember, we've talked about this before because the story I had always heard before doing more research was the story we just talked about. He got it from the the servant that was from the Bahamas. Mm Mm-hmm. Then we were watching the lore TV show, if you remember, and it said that his aunt gave it to him, sent mm-hmm. it to the mail. And because I remember mm-hmm. we were talking in about, well, that's completely different from what I've heard. Right. The story that we found out is true is that his grandfather gave it to him. And I'll tell you a little more later about how we know that's true. So it was given to him by his grandfather after a trip to Germany. Um, Robert is kept today at the Fort West martello museum in key west florida their research found out that it was never intended to be a doll to begin with it was made by a company named the stife and was part of a clown or a court jester display like that would be kept in their store window Mm -hmm. so i don't think i don't even know if it was even meant to be for sale but his grandpa saw it he liked it and he went ahead and shipped it over so let's talk about robert the doll as far as Um, we know where he came from now. What's he made of? Robert's a -a one-of-a-kind handmade doll created around the 1900s, early 1900s. He's 40 inches tall, and he's stuffed with a wood wool known as Excelsior. You ever heard of Excelsior? Mm -mm. It sounds like a drink. Like Alka-Seltzer? Something like it, I guess, maybe. He's dressed in a sailor suit, as we talked about, but that sailor suit did not come with the doll. And all the research tells us that that was probably Robert Eugene's Otto's clothes, the little boy. It was probably his sailor suit, Mm -hmm. and they put it on the doll because it just happened to be about the same size. The doll's face is mm, vaguely human. It's a weird look to it. It's got kind of a nub nose, and it's got a smirk that's on his face. And... It's got these little brown nicks that are kind of like scars all over it. His eyes are beady and black, and he's holding a stuffed lion, as we spoke of. But apparently that stuffed lion was mm-hmm. already what he came with, not put there because that's what Robert I, f- I feel like I have to stop you because I feel like I'm really lost. Okay. Okay, so the lady made the doll and put a hex on it. That was the legend. The legend. How did the doll get to the to Grandpa? I think I missed that. It didn't. The grandpa bought the doll in Germany and gave it to Robert. So all that stuff you just told me about the hex and all that was not true. Yes. Thus me saying how he actually got the doll was from his grandpa. 
Yeah, I knew that, but I was—I I guess I was thinking that it was—it tra- it got to Grandpa somehow. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. You're fine. So, but you bring up an interesting point, though, just because just because the the story of the origin was wrong doesn't mean the rest of the story we're going to tell you is wrong because the rest of the story is is about much factual as we can do. Robert the Doll is known for having a turbulent and we'll guess we'll say malicious past. But it didn't start out that way. So in the beginning, things seemed a little more innocent. Like any boy with a brand new toy, uh, Robert Eugene Otto took the doll everywhere he went. Some say that Robert was four when he got the doll, but I've seen other stories that said he was seven or eight years old. Mm -hmm. But we'll stick with four years old. Regardless, the doll was as big as, as he was. So that doesn't change things. Now, Robert was often heard whispering to this doll. No big deal. But... When this really deep voice was heard answering back, that's when things started to get kind of strange. So it was about that time that Robert changed his name to Eugene, or Gene, which is his middle name, because the doll's name was now Robert. So you follow me on this? So now, yeah. now they were both, it was just Robert yeah. was the kid, but he decided to name the doll Robert, and he changed his name to Gene. Mm-hmm, gotcha. So as time moves forward, the story became stranger. So the stall started to have somewhat of a, a hold on Eugene, we'll say. He had these violent commotions. I mean, you could be hearing these things from uh, Eugene's room on a nightly basis. Toys would be ripped apart, furniture overturned, and when they got into his room, Eugene would always be on the bed, cowering in fear, and the answer was always the same. Robert did it. So this only happens at night? Well, at this point. Yeah. As you can imagine, his parents would only take so much of this crap. Robert the doll was banished to the attic. Now, there was an aunt that was the one that actually put him up in the attic, and the story goes that she died later the same night after putting him in the attic. What? The same night? Yeah. Woo! Homie, don't play. Apparently not. So they had servants still. Servants would arrive and promptly quit because of uh, hearing the dog giggle and moving around from the attic. They would hear footsteps and stuff like that. Wow. So it freaked them out, so it was kind of hard to keep some help. So as Gene got into his teenage years, he became even closer to Robert. Now, you would think this would be the exact opposite. You get a little older, well, yeah. you start hanging out with people. You don't have to play with your dog. Yeah, but he did because Gene didn't have any friends. Robert was his only friend. He'd walk around in the streets of Key West holding Robert (gasps) as a teenager. (laughs) When Eugene was about 19, his family moved to France. And guess who got left behind? They did not. They did. They left Robert in the attic. Well, well, why didn't Gene not take him? I don't know. You think he, well, surely he wouldn't have forgot. I'm, I'm sure he was forced not to take him. But that is an interesting question that I really didn't research because you would think as addicted as he was to this doll that he probably would throw a fit about him not leaving. Right. So they get over to uh, Paris, and Robert became a completely different person. He became very social. He began painting, and he met a woman named Anne, and they eventually got married. Oh, very cool. So what a, what a big difference for Robert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he changed his name back. No, I, I said that because, I, hell, I can't keep the story straight. Eugene. What a big He still kept his name Eugene. Oh, okay. Well, Eugene's parents gave him 
quite the nice wedding gift. They gave him the house in Key West. Oh. So they moved back. Well, that was not, nice. Not the parents. But Rob, they just you know, Eugene, I mean, Eugene. Eugene and Anne moved back. They're in Key West. Shortly afterwards, Eugene finds Robert in the attic. Anne didn't like Robert the doll at all. And she could see him move and laugh and just an odd feeling about mm-hmm. him. So, to, in her opinion, there was something freaky about this doll. She didn't like it. On the other hand, Eugene picked right back up where he left off. Yeah, I was going to say, how did he react? Oh, it's just like, not even like they'd left. I mean, he's back to spending all of his time. So, Anne demanded that the doll be sent back to the attic. Well, after hearing furniture moving and footsteps, she became kind of scared. Yeah, I would too. Now, Eugene, on the other hand, said that Robert told him that he was not going to stay in the attic and he demanded to be moved to a room of his own. <laughs> so being a good little boy and doing what he's told, Eugene takes Robert, gets him out of the attic, and he puts him in his own room. Now, this is one of those houses that has a turret, as we discussed before. It's kind of a castle-looking mm-hmm. rounded room, and that's the room that became Robert's room. Eugene made a small bed for him. He made furniture that was scaled to size for Robert, so he had like like a little couch and stuff like that in there. (laughs) (laughs) But primarily, he would prop him up in the windows. Uh And school kids would would go by there, and they would swear that they would see Robert moving in the window, and that sometimes he would disappear and then reappear. Uh Like he walked away and then came back to the window. So little kids were freaking out. But Eugene himself started spending all of his time in that turret room. And Robert became right back to being his number one fascination. So he would spend, this is where, this is the room that he chose to do all of his painting at. And Uh like I said, he became a pretty accomplished painter throughout. And even, uh, we're going to find out even some architecture and stuff that he was responsible. This guy was kind of a genius when it came to art. So Anne said that, that, Eugene would show hatred towards her and be real angry and lash out, and then he'd go right back to normal, kind of like what you would think of people being bipolar yeah. or something today. But she 100% blamed the doll, that this doll was causing him to do that. Mm-hmm. Even if it wasn't physically you know, the case, she at least felt like that Eugene thought in his mind that that was the cause. Yeah. So Then... She got sick of it and left. Well, no, that didn't happen. (laughs) But she did have a situation where she was out by the outhouse, and she was shoved into it and locked in it for like three days. Who did that? Well, Eugene did it. But guess what he said? Robert did it. What's his name? Made me do it. Oh, he blamed it on him? Yeah, Robert did it. Robert did it. So Gene continued to live in that house and have a super tight bond with Robert all the way up until 1974 when he died. Now, keep in mind, Gene was born in 1900. So he was like 73, 74 years old when he died. And had that doll for the majority of his life with that kind of a weird bond. Isn't I mean, that crazy? Like I said, he, even as an old man, he would walk down the streets and stuff with this doll. He was 73 years old. He died in a turret room with Robert the doll present. 
there are rumors. I don't know how true they are, but there are rumors and legends out there that when they found his body, that Robert the doll was on top of him with his hands around his throat. <laughs> That's not funny. I <laughs> see. I try to make that all dramatic and shit, and you start laughing. <laughs> well. <laughs> What happened to Anne? Well, that's a good question because Anne seen this as, I guess, payback. Well, not payback, <laughs> but she was still married to him and everything. So she, oh, was, she was. She was like she decided to sell the house, and she sold it to a uh, a woman by the name of Myrtle. I think her name's Reuter, R E U T E R, mm-hmm. Myrtle Reuter. <laughs> that's that's kind of hard to say. That almost sound like Myrtle Reuter. I know it, Myrtle Reuter. So she sells the house when. When Myrtle bought the house, guess what she also got? It comes with a really cool doll. <laughs> That's exactly <laughs> what it was. She got Robert the doll because Anne left it in the house because Anne wasn't about to take it anywhere. So Myrtle confirms some of the Robert stories out there. She said she would often find Robert in a completely different room than she left him at. Visitors to her new home which is now called the Artist House because he was an artist. So that's mm-hmm. what the name of the home is. It's a bed and breakfast now, by the way. So or I don't know if it's a bed and breakfast, but it's you can rent rooms, a hotel room. So mm-hmm. how cool would that be? No. Well, we're gone. I've already booked the room. I've already booked the room. I don't think. Room. Well, the doll's not in the room. Where's well, he at now? We'll discuss that oh, more. Oh, he's, oh, he's in somewhere else. He's in the said. museum now. That's right. So visitors to, to her new house, Myrtle's house, didn't like Robert. At all. And they, she found out the same thing from them, that he would appear and just disappear at will. So she and her visitors also claimed that his smirk on his face would change when Eugene was being talked about in a negative way. In 1994, Myrtle donated him to the Fort East Martello Museum in Key West, Florida, where he resides today. Now... If you know anything about Robert the doll, you know that he is locked in a glass case down there. And he's got all kinds of rumors and stuff attached to him, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of those rumors. Interesting fact, though, the museum that she donated to, the Fort East Mortello Museum, was designed by Eugene Otto. Oh, so it's almost like, like they're still together. Almost like they're still together. So I thought that was pretty cool. Now, as soon as Robert moved into the museum, because he, he didn't start off in the glass case, mm-hmm. he earned that. He worked his way into the glass case <laughs> because the museum staff noticed a change of energy as soon as Robert arrived. Now, when he first got there, he wasn't initially put on exhibit, but word got out that he was there and people would just started showing up. When they heard that he was there. So eventually he was put on display and uh, cameras and electronic devices started malfunctioning in his presence. Oh, man. Soon people started sending letters and they were addressed to Robert the doll. So when these letters started showing up, they would museum staff would open them up and they would find out that they were like asking for forgiveness to the doll for being disrespectful or behavior or not asking to take a picture with him. So I guess people were taking pictures and stuff with him and they started having all these horrible uh, rashes of bad luck and stuff happen. 
Robert's been blamed for car accidents, broken bones, job losses, divorce, and even death. What? Yeah. What a turd. And at the end of this, I'm going to read you some of the letters that have been sent. Oh, cool. But there's been hundreds upon hundreds, so we're not going to read all of them. Isn't that weird? That's so weird. In the museum, before Robert was locked in his little glass house, there were reports that the crew would walk into a mess in the museum, just like in Robert's room. Mm Mm-hmm. It would be a complete mess, and Robert would have, like, dust and stuff on his feet. <laughs> like he had been running around in there. Oh, that is funny. There was one case where there was a hurricane that did damage. Like a whole hurricane? You mean like a real one? Yeah. Oh. Well, not like a, you know, Miami hurricane. It wouldn't like, you know, <laughs> you know Michael saying. Irvin came in there and started causing damage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying... The the, the the museum suffered damage from the hurricane, and I think it ripped some of the roof off. And when it did, it did a lot. There was a lot of you know stuff in there that got wet, stuff got moved around. Oh, but, don't tell me nothing happened to him. Well, Robert was actually up in a rafter, just kind of hanging over one of the rafters, but he suffered no damage at all, while a bunch of the other stuff got wet inside the museum. He ain't trying to get blowed away. Apparently not. I am so thirsty. <laughs> this is a fantastic. Whew, sorry, y'all. I've just drank a whole big glass of stuff, and now I'm drinking Jerry's. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, that's awesome. So that affects the show none, but I'm sorry. I people at least know that you're it. thirsty. Now we talked about the artist house uh, being like a not a bed and breakfast, but like mm-hmm. a, a room rooms you can rent and stuff. Now the artist house is supposedly haunted. Haunted. Let's try that again. Haunted <laughs> by the ghost of Anne, who's trapped in the torrent room with Robert. Wait, what? Yep. What? Yep. Supposedly, she's trapped in the uh, the torrent room. That's what the ghosts have claimed to see her, and ghosts also claim to see Robert in the torrent room when they oh, stay there. Oh, man. What a bummer. <laughs> it sucks to be her. Well... I told you that we were going to tell some or read some letters. Mm-hmm. But what I want to do first, before we read the letters, we're going to end on that. But we've got our interview with John E.L. Tenney. And I'm telling you guys, I've mentioned this a couple of shows before, before I could even uh, put this up here. This guy you will love. If you've never listened to him before, you're going to love this interview. It's one of my favorites. He is funny. He's smart. He has, he's into every aspect of uh, weird, mm-hmm. and he takes pride in being weird. That's what his lectures are called, and we'll get into all that. But this guy is an expert on ghosts, paranormal investigating, uh, UFOs. He's seen a couple of UFOs. He's talked to a lot of famous people. He's performed with Kid Rock. I mean, he's got so many different things, and we talk about all of it. So let's give this a listen, and we'll come back and we'll play some uh, or listen to. um... Try. We will. We will read the stories since (laughs) Jerry can't seem to spit it out today. We'll we'll read the Robert the Doll letters when we come back. Well, I have got a, a super special guest on tonight, and I'll be honest, I don't know how to introduce you. Most people, John. I would bring on and say, hey, they're a paranormal investigator or they're an author or you, my man, are literally a jack of all trades. (laughs) So let me just say, 
John E.L. Tenney, and I think that says enough for most people, but let's be honest, you literally are an author. You are a musician and a, a painter, um, paranormal investigator, uh, UF, ufologist. I mean, you name it, and you're into it, and I just don't see how you find the time to do all of that. You know, it's thanks for, <laughs> it's absolutely true. Like, I don't know how I do it either. It's just... Part of my nature, I think it's because I drink so much coffee, but uh, I don't know. It was just, it's always, since I was a kid, like whenever anything seemed exciting or new or weird to me, I needed to explore it to its full depths. And that's the good thing about high strangeness and paranormal phenomena is that, you know, there's no end to the depth of it. So I can just get lost in it. And it's just everything with art. You know, I was in punk rock bands all in the 80s and 90s and... Uh, uh, we have, if you want to talk, you were talking before we went on the air about uh, a George Bush story. If you want to talk about Kid Rock, I've got a good Kid Rock story. Well, it's funny <laughs> you mention that because that's on my list because I mentioned you were a musician and, and I saw that you had performed with Kid Rock and that's on my list to ask. So let's go ahead and get it out of the way. All right. Well, it's not, it's, I'll tell you what, it's not going to be a good story. I, I, uh, Bob and I, do not get along very well. I met uh, <laughs> I met him. I was in a punk rock band in the eighties, early nineties, and he was strictly rap at that time. And we used the same recording studio, so he needed someone to lay down guitar tracks. And I was there late one night after my band recorded, and so I laid down some samples for him, and that's how we kind of met. And over the course of the next few years. I'd play for him, play with him, and he would, you know, come and sit and listen to my band and go to our shows. And he got signed to a real small label in New York, and they were looking for a rock and roll act. And so he asked me, do you guys want to be on this label? And I said, yeah, sure. And so he had a big studio in Michigan that he built, his dad built. Uh, a lot of people don't know, but Bob come, Bob is a very wealthy person. He started off very wealthy. Like, there's this idea that he's straight out of the trailer park, I know he says in one song. Right. But uh, he was the richest kid I knew growing up. He had a 40-acre apple orchard and servants. And so uh, his dad had him, this studio built for him. And we went there and we recorded a whole album. We ended up breaking up. And then about a year later... Bob put out this record called Devil Without a Cause. Vaguely familiar and, with it. <laughs> right? And that's that's really the album that made him famous. And it was where he went from rap to, to like rock rap. And all of the music that you hear on that album is the rock and roll album that my band recorded. Oh, wow. And so then there was lawsuits that went on for years and friendships dissolved and fell apart. And it, it got pretty hairy there for a while. And I think the last time I talked to him, we just kind of nodded at each other. That was about probably about eight years ago. We just nodded at each other and kept walking. We didn't even really say hello. Wow. And I, and I never would have guessed that when I, when I heard that you had performed with. I didn't really think it was going to take that direction. But you're right. That's not uh, the story you were expecting to hear. <laughs> You know, it's strange. I mean, I don't harbor any ill will now. It's a good story to tell, but we were both young, and, you know, obviously he's used it and become very successful, and I have no idea what he's like now. So, you know, I can only, I only have these memories, these fleeting memories of the, the two youths, 
Bob and John sitting around in a room trying to come up with songs. So, I mean, I people think I dislike him, but I really don't dislike anybody. I mean, we all grow up and change, right? I would hope so. I would hope so. I know I'm a lot different than I was 20, 30 years ago. Oh, for sure. I mean, that, you know, that ties into like my paranormal stuff. When I started off in this, I was a gopher. My mentor specialized in political assassinations of the 1960s and 70s. I got my start in conspiracy theory, and I never thought that I would be a researcher of all high, all things that are strange, you know, of Bigfoot and UFOs and ghosts. Uh, I helped my mentor Craig for years doing his lectures about JFK, RFK, Malcolm X, MLK, the Kent State University shooting, Black Panther Party murders. Um, but when I was 18, I had a kind of freak heart attack and died and was dead for three minutes, almost three and a half minutes. And when I came back and kind of recovered from that, I was like, oh, so I've been doing what Craig loves this whole time. And and I loved it too, but I realized there was this whole other realm that I was able to explore now, the, you know, the realm of ghosts and psychic phenomena and how that ties into UFOs and cryptozoology and what happens to my consciousness once my biology dies. And that really, that started me on this trek. Well, let's backstep a little bit. Now, when you and Chad Lindbergh were doing Ghost Stalkers, one of the things that was highly publicized was putting you two together and what you two had in common were both had near-death experiences that had got you on this path to the paranormal. Mm-hmm. Can you explain to me a little bit about what you saw in your near-death experience? Sure. It's hard. It's hard to talk about because what I experienced is was really nothing. Uh, and so to call it something is kind of does it a disservice. But when I died, I had uh, an awareness of existing, but I was existing within infinity. And in infinity, there's nothing except your awareness of being inside of infinity and being inside of nothing. And you are nothing and you are infinity. It's this kind of very deep metaphysical idea that's hard to get across because we just don't have words for it. You know, if you try, if you try thinking of an infinite string of numbers, your brain will just eventually shut off after a couple minutes because you'll realize there's no point to it. If you try to imagine nothing and you imagine black, you're already imagining something. So you're not imagining nothing like you can't do it. So your brain just stops thinking about it. Well, when I died, I experienced nothing and infinity which is something that our biological brains just can't ha- just can't handle. We just can't deal with it. So the the biological brain shuts down. And for me, it was a truly terrifying experience because you know I knew I was me, but I knew that like my first reaction when I became this awareness inside of infinity, my first reaction was to scream. And then I realized I didn't have a mouth. And so I couldn't scream and I wanted to cover my eyes, but I didn't have hands. I didn't have eyes. And that went on. That experience went on forever because I was inside of infinity. That's uh, exciting and depressing all at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've heard people tell me that, you know, oh, it seems like hell or some kind of, you know, purgatory, something like that. But the reality for me 
is that it was a very traumatic thing. It took me about a year uh, to kind of recover from it. And I went to therapy for years afterward, and I still have PTSD from it. Most people who have near-death experiences suffer some form of PTSD. But what I realized with hindsight, and like we were just saying earlier, you know, we change and grow, that kind of horrifying experience, what was horrifying to me at the time, turned me into a much better person. It was a transformational experience that I look back on now with a a lot of insight and happiness as to how it shaped me and molded me to become the person that I was. So I think even though the experience itself sounds horrific, the end result of it was something that was unimaginably beautiful. Here's what I like about that story. And people, people call me weird too. I know you're, you're one of those guys that if I brought on anybody else and said, Hey, this guy is extremely weird. They would probably take it as an insult, but I'm sure you don't because you like to label yourself that way. Yeah. And I'm a little on the weird side too. Like I like the fact that your story doesn't involve a white light. Everything in, it seems like everybody that has a near-death experience, you hear, oh, there was a white light. And then I saw everything was white around me. And then there's all these ghosts that people see. They're always the lady in white. And it just makes me think that the afterlife is like a, like a giant progressive insurance commercial or something. And that's more scary to me than the alternative. Well, you know, there, there, there are three, the three most common near-death experiences are, number one is obviously the tunnel of white light and, You've got, you know, all your relatives over there with balloons and puppies and candy and they're waving you in and it's gorgeous and wonderful. That's that's the most heard about one. And that's because it's a, a truly like immediately positive experience. So people are willing to talk about it. So that's the one you hear all the time, the one that you're talking about. The second one that you hear pretty much most, most frequently after that first one is uh, people die and they are in the room where they die. They're about, they're outside of their body. They're looking at the doctors resuscitating them or they're floating on the top of the ambulance that's taking them to the hospital. So they have an awareness, but they can see the experience of life going on outside of their body. And even though it's frightening, it's weird and cool, so people talk about it. The third experience is this void experience that I have and because it's traumatic, because it takes years of kind of therapy to get through, because some people never get over it, you just never hear about people talking about it because they don't want to revisit that trauma. Uh, but yeah, like, like you were saying, the one you hear the most, white light, puppies, uh, shining and candy, everything's great over there, come on through. Yeah, I mean... You know, there's so many different versions, like you said, there's three different versions of that, and you got people that claim that they've went to hell, you got people that claim they went to heaven and were, were brought back. It's, you know, it just kind of makes you wonder how much is um, something that they feel like is real but really wasn't in some cases, because I, I think there are cases where people like yourself experience something and there's no doubt about it but then i do think there are people that think they experienced a near-death experience when it was probably more of uh, a dream type state i mean i don't know what your thoughts are on that uh no you're right i mean there's a lot of people i mean whenever you have any kind of traumatic experience the brain does a multitude of things i mean one of the as a sidebar to this conversation one of the things like 
you ask how I have time to study stuff. Well, like with near-death experiences and, and neurobiology and neurochemistry, for a person like me to have a near-death experience, the first thing I did was dove into the research and made friends that were neurobiologists and neuroscientists. I wanted to know how my brain worked. I wanted to know what had happened to me. And so you become a de facto expert on this thing. I mean, it's like if you get any in our normal everyday lives, if you get, you know, a red patch on your elbow and it doesn't go away for a week, you become an expert on red patches on skin because you're constantly trying to figure out what it is. Well, the same thing for me with near death experiences. And a lot of it is perspective. Like you were saying, this experience, the, the void experience that I had, if I had come from a very religious background, if I was brought up my whole life with some kind of very strict religious background, I probably would tell people that I had gone to hell because that'd be my frame of reference. Or if I experienced a tunnel of bright white light and my relatives were there, I'd probably tell people I went to heaven because that would be my perspective on it. So, you know, you could, you can have people experiencing, you know, a few similar things, but because of their own unique personality and their own perception and awareness of reality, they call it by what they're most familiar with. I mean, and that definitely makes sense because, like you said, it's all about perspective. So let's let's change gears. I'm going to bounce all over the place. People know yeah. that when I do interviews, I like to get to know the person and maybe discuss some things that you haven't discussed openly a whole lot in these forums that you do. <laughs> One of the things that, that really draw me to you as far as a connection is the fact that I am a, a stand-up comedian, former stand-up comedian more or less these days. And I know you are in that uh, same ballpark. You do some stand-up. You've had some comedy podcasts. Um, so tell me a little bit about what kind of comedy you like that sucked you into that part that made you want to get on stage. Who were some of your favorite comedians? Uh, I'll tell you what. When I, I, I do stand-up, I am not a good comedian. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, most of the time I do stand-up comedy to keep my ego in check. Like I know that my lectures about ghosts and UFOs and Bigfoot and weird stuff, I know that those lectures will go fairly well. Uh, but I know that when I get up on stage and try and do comedy, there is a very great chance that I'm going to be mocked and booed and shut out and dead silence and just bomb like crazy. And that I think is really good for me to to say like, listen, you're not you're not good at st- some things. You're you're better at other things. Stay in your lane. Uh, but when I was growing up, I loved Monty Python, Benny Hill. There was a comedian named Dave Allen. Um, I remember George, Dave Allen. He's missing a finger. Missing a finger. He used to, and and I loved his whole kind of shtick of just sitting in a chair drinking a scotch and mixing it with his missing finger and telling jokes. I loved that stuff. Uh, of course, you know when I was growing up, I shouldn't have been, but I would sneak up and and watch like George Carlin specials mm-hmm. when my family finally got cable, and I I think that's. There were a couple of comedy albums that my mom had, too, and I'd listened to them as a kid, probably eight, nine, ten years old. And I didn't know they were funny. I just knew that they were really strange. So, like, one of the albums that my mom had was The Button-Down Mind of Bob Newhart. Yep. <laughs> and I used to listen to it, and I was just fascinated because I didn't, as a kid, I didn't understand how it was funny. 
And then, you know, as I got older, I kept listening to that album. And then all of a sudden you start realizing the timing and what he's talking about. You start catching more references because you're getting older. So now you're understanding what he's talking about. And and that stuff was super fascinating to me. So that was those those albums were Bob Newhart, The Button Down Mine. Uh, there was uh, one of the albums was uh, Red Fox, which was like straight like dirt and filth, like it was. Probably the first time I heard someone just saying dirty words. It was an exact opposite of Bob Newhart. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. And then I think the other one was uh, my dad had the, I'm trying to think of what the name of the album was. It was called like the the, the first or the greatest astronaut. And it was an album by Jose Jimenez. Huh, that's a new one on me. It was a comedian, his name was Bill Dana, and he had a character that I think was maybe supposed to be from Mexico, and so it was just this really kind of weird character that for an entire album where he would just keep saying, my name is Jose Jimenez, over and over and over again. And as a kid, just his construct, his voice, made me laugh so hard, and so... You know, I, I would do, I loved to perform, I loved to stand up in front of people, I loved to play music, I loved to do lectures and that stuff. So it just kind of seemed natural. I think the first time technically I ever did comedy, I don't think I've ever talked about this on a show, so I'm glad that this, I have no secrets. Uh, when I was in sixth grade, I asked the teacher if I could do, in front of the class on a Friday, the cruel shoes. Do you know what that is? No. It's a Steve Martin bit, and I used to have, my mom had a 45 of it, and it's just Steve Martin uh, talking to a shoe salesman, and the shoe salesman has a pair of cruel shoes, and the teacher said I could do it for some reason, who knows what was going on in the, <laughs> that era, but she let me stand up the last like three minutes of class and do this entire Steve Martin monologue about the cruel shoes. And when kids were laughing, it was no better feeling, like, ever. I can remember it to this day. It is a good feeling. It just, uh, it, there's very few things in life that can just give you a natural high. But something, getting on stage and getting people to appreciate what you do, no matter what it is, is, is one of those things that, that just can't be touched. So, since you're a comedian, too, you realize that people who do comedy we are damaged people absolutely <laughs> absolutely i mean there is something wrong with us to get up in front of strangers and know that a lot of the time it is not gonna go well well maybe not for you it always went well for me uh, but that's oh. you know that's a different story <laughs> also i'm a compulsive liar um Let's do this. Well, you're a comedian. Yeah, that's right. That's what we do. We lie on stage for the most part, and uh, and or you hope you're lying. You'd hope if most of the stuff was true, I'd be like, what a tragic life. But unfortunately, that is the truth of of most comedians. Um, some of the best comedians had a tragic background and and just used comedy to basically escape. And you know, it you is sad to think the Robin Williams of the world and. Um, Jeff Jenna, I mean, not Jeff Jenna, but uh, Richard Jenna and some of these others that uh, have tragically, you know, committed suicide just because they just couldn't cope if they weren't on stage. Yeah, they're just trying to fill that hole with laughter, you know. There's something in them that's missing, and laughter, you know, fills 
short periods of time, but eventually it just gets the best of them. Well, we'll segue getting up on stage in front of a bunch of strangers to what you've spent a big part of the last 28 years doing, which is lectures. Um, we talked about the whole weird aspect earlier, the, how you embrace that. Tell us a little bit about the lectures that you've been doing and, and how that started and, and how that uh, fits into your life right now. Yeah, so I, as I said earlier, I used to help my mentor Craig do his conspiracy lectures back in the late 80s, beginning of early 90s. And at some point, someone asked me, I think it was probably in 90, someone asked me, I was doing a JFK lecture, if I thought JFK had been killed because of what he knew about UFOs. And I didn't have an answer for them. And that felt really terrible. It was like bombing at comedy. And so I went home and I always liked weird stuff. And I had, you know, one or two books on UFOs, but nothing massive. And I went to the libraries and I started just reading just with a fury because I wanted to have this answer. And the more that I read about UFOs, you know, names would come up that crossed over into my conspiracy lectures. And that was super fascinating. And then there were a few UFO books that led me into ghost books. And then there were some ghost books that led me into cryptozoological books. And I realized very early on that if I was going to do a lecture, sure, I could do a UFO lecture. Sure, I can do a conspiracy lecture. I still do, you know, in July around Roswell, I'll do a UFO lecture. In November, I'll do a Kennedy lecture. But for me, I always wanted people, and I, I still do, I want people to diversify their weirdness. It's, it's great to love ghosts. It's great to love UFOs. It's great to love cryptids. But I think that when you compartmentalize your weirdness or what you think is weird, you're missing a much bigger picture. So I started doing these lectures where I'll start off talking about ghosts, but by the end, I might be talking about time travelers and reptilians and the detrimental robots that live underneath the ground that control us with mind-controlling rays. Like, I want to get as weird as possible and get the seeds planted in people's heads that our reality is far stranger than we give it credit for. I mean, we are these tiny little beings in this seemingly endless cosmos, and we seem to have a shared reality and... Millions of people for thousands of years have had been having the most bizarre experiences with no real explanation as to why. And we think that it's either not real or it's outside of normal. Like I have a problem with the word paranormal because I think this stuff is going on and paranormal would suggest that it's not normal. I think it is normal. We just don't know how to discuss it. We don't have the words for it. It's a a philosophical conversation, at least in my mind, because we're talking about what happens when you die. Is there life in outer space? Is there different types of life on our planet? These are very deep philosophical questions that we should be having with each other. And whenever you have any kind of philosophical conversation, it usually starts with sitting down and saying, okay, this is what this word is going to mean. And then you can all be on the same page. But even in the paranormal community, in the ghost hunting community, we've never sat down and said, what's a ghost? Because everybody, you know, that ghost hunts, they have a propensity to believe in ghosts, 
But what I think of a ghost and what you think of a ghost and what someone else thinks of a ghost, we're thinking of three different things. Yep, I can see that. So we really need to talk to each other about the weirdest parts of our lives and even the things that might not seem so weird. I talk at my lectures a lot about synchronicities and coincidences because, you know, I say this on a lot of uh, podcasts and even at a lot of, a lot of lectures, I, I tell people, you know, when, when something strange happens to you, when a coincidence happens, the dictionary definition of a coincidence is seemingly unrelated events which seem to be related for no seemingly relatable reason. So, I mean, the definition is kind of a bullshit definition. What it <laughs> yeah. means is a coincidence is we don't know why that happened. And so if you don't know why it happens, it should fall into the realm of what we call paranormal phenomena. Why do those things happen to us? They're just as strange as seeing a ghost. When uh, The example I give at some of my lectures, when I moved into my house, I was digging through an old box that I hadn't opened in 15 years, and I found a high school yearbook in there, and I opened it up, and it was my freshman year uh, yearbook. And there was a note from this kid, Scott. And it was, oh, you know, hope to see you next year or whatever. And he and I had been friends my freshman year. And then we were never friends again. And I hadn't seen him in, uh, I don't even know, 20 years, 25 years. But I thought of him. I was like, oh, Scott, now I have the Internet. I can look him up on the Internet, see what he's doing. <laughs> so I made a mental note. I put the yearbook away. I closed the box up and I went to the grocery store. And he was standing behind me in line at the grocery store. That's crazy. Yeah, that is as strange as the two and a half seconds that you might see a kind of ghostly form flick through the darkness. Yeah. And, and I get a lot of that too. You know, I've, I, th I know it's not this exact same thing, but I was talking to my wife. We were, we were riding down the road and I said something to her about just randomly. I said, have you ever heard the song running bear loves little white girl? It's an old song from the late fifties, maybe early sixties. And she looked at me like I was crazy and it's like, um, no, I've never heard that. And we were listening to this real old station. I mean, it was, a, it was we were out in the middle of the country, and it was playing. That's what they played. They played these real old songs. That's what made me think of it. And don't you know, five, ten minutes later, that song came on. Yep. And that just, like, blew both of us away that things yeah, like that sure. could happen. Yeah, it's stuff like that that we need to pay attention to. It's strange. It's Like I said, it's just as strange as... Hearing an EVP or getting a knock when you're sitting alone in a dark room asking for something to knock. Like, it's this little way that the universe says, hey, I'm stranger than you think I am. I mean, we, we have people have this stuff happen to them all day long and they don't pay attention to it because they're, oh, it's just a coincidence. It doesn't matter. But if you paid attention to them, if we all really paid attention to them, we might notice that there's something underneath it that might be trying to send us signals. I got a couple of what I would consider to be weird phenomenas that uh, I'm, I don't know that you have an opinion on them, but I find it hard to believe you wouldn't. But let's talk about, are you familiar with the term death knock? Uh, I don't think so. Maybe if you explain it, I well, might know it by a different name. It's mainly more of a German type tradition is how it got brought in, but it's, it's where if you're like in the middle of a sleep, uh, or sometimes you don't have to be asleep, but if you get awoken by like three knocks, that sounds like somebody knocking on the front of a, say, like a castle door, that okay. big echoey sound, that usually somebody passes right after that. Have you ever heard of that before? 
I haven't. I heard of, I, there's a similar phenomenon. You know the baby train? No, that one's new on me. <laughs> it's When you were talking about it, it sounds to me there's a phenomenon that's called the baby train, which is uh, a man and a woman will be sleeping, and they'll wake up because they hear a train, and then since they're awake, they'll have sex. And then usually a baby is produced out of that one time that they have they do that they have that union, and so there's this phenomenon that's called the baby train because people for a hundred years talk about hearing this train. It woke us up in the middle of the night, and we didn't have anything to do. We were trying to get back to sleep, so we just had sex, and then the woman ends up pregnant from that. Well, I was familiar of some trains that resulted in babies, but that was usually back in the '60s. So <laughs> that's something probably something completely different. What about spontaneous human combustion? Yeah, it's an interesting phenomenon. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of great reports about it. It doesn't seem to happen so frequently that we've got any good data about it. Uh, one of the things that does seem to be pretty similar about it is that the majority of people who we think have spontaneously combust have been alcoholics, which I think is interesting because there's this idea that They've kind of become a alcohol-soaked wick, and obviously we're around naturally occurring electromagnetic fields all the time, sparks on the, on the floor, people smoke cigarettes. And so there's this idea that the alcohol has so saturated a person's body, you know, sometimes if you go out drinking too hard, you can actually smell it on your skin the next day. And there's this idea that somehow or another a slow burn starts inside someone and they actually combust. But uh, I don't know. It's it, it's interesting to me just that stuff like that. Again, you know, Charles Fort, who was one of the collectors of high strangeness and weird phenomena, studied stuff like that and never came to a good conclusion on it. I don't really have any ideas of what it could or couldn't be. I mean, for me, I allow the universe to be as strange as possible in the sense that maybe sometimes the universe just blows somebody up. <laughs> and sometimes, sometimes that should happen. Let me ask you this. You were on a, a good friend of ours, a good friend of the show, uh, Rob Christopherson's show, Our Strange Skies, a couple of weeks ago. Fascinating interview. If and anybody listening, um, I advise you to go listen to that because you're going to get a lot of different stuff than what we cover on this one. But Rob, I asked him when he was on our show a couple of weeks ago, the same question I'm going to ask you. You may or may not have heard this, but there's a story that Jackie Gleason was actually taken to an Air Force base by Richard Nixon and showed aliens, and it kind of messed him up. Uh, and this story came from Jackie Gleason's wife after uh, Jackie had passed. She put the story out. Have you ever heard that story? And if so, do you have any belief that that may have happened? Yeah, you know, uh, it's interesting because... Gleason and Nixon were friends. Like, that's that's something we know that's true. But then you get into the, the whole uh, 1973, they take a late-night drive to Homestead Air Force Base, and the, they see aliens. Uh, I really feel like in situations like that, first of all, I have this notion that presidents don't know about, if there are aliens, presidents don't know about it. I feel like a president is someone who comes into office and at the most will be there for eight years and 
get all of the deep secrets. Like, they might get as sidetracked and scurious information that we get. Like, they might tell the president something keep them from thinking about it. They might even have fake aliens somewhere that they show them just so they can say, here, there's, there's the aliens for you. But I don't really... I don't really think that they would tell the president. And I don't think, no matter how good of friends Nixon was with Gleason, I don't think that he could have gotten the security clearance to get Gleason to see if there were actually aliens there. That makes sense. Way to, way to ruin a good story. Thanks. I like it, though. I mean, I would <laughs> like to think that Jackie Gleason saw aliens, but uh, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of famous people who have seen aliens just they don't have the you know they weren't friends with nixon at the time you think nixon was good friends with elvis too you think elvis would have a good nixon took me to see alien story well with as many drugs as elvis was on i'm sure he saw a lot of stuff but without nixon's help <laughs> that's absolutely true <laughs> so we brought up uh rob christopherson's show and i heard you tell a couple of stories so i want to give him credit for asking these questions you told um, a story about a couple of UFO encounters, and I wanted to know if you could uh, tell us about that and then follow it up with your George Bush story. Yeah, so, you know, I actually, it's so strange to me to think, so the first time I saw something that I think was I think was a UFO, I was working a midnight shift, and I went out into an alley, and it was a dark night, but a very bright moon, clear sky, and I was just smoking a cigarette, staring at the moon, looking at all the craters and, and shadows on it. And something in the kind of beneath the moon out of the corner of my eye, I saw something just moving. And I didn't stop looking at the moon. I just thought to myself, oh, that's a, a really strange bird. And it kept going. And then I finally looked at it and I thought to myself, that's a really weird plane. And looked back at the moon then it kept coming across the sky, and I looked back down at it, and I thought, someone is flying a kite around here. That's really weird. It's late at night. And then I looked back at the moon, and then right before it disappeared over the tops of the buildings, I looked back at it, and I was like, holy shit, that's a UFO. And then it was gone. And the thing that fascinated me about it, and still does to this day, is that as a person, at that time, I was giving lectures about UFOs. I had already been you know, studying UFOs for years by that time. And here I am seeing a UFO, and it was the last thing on my mind. It was either like this paradigm shift where my mind couldn't handle seeing something like that, or I really have talked about it in my lectures before about someone having the technology to block you from realizing that you're looking at a UFO until it's too late to see it. And then you only have this kind of wispy notion that you saw something weird. Uh, it was really strange. It was uh, blacker than the sky, which is how I saw it. And as it passed over the city, you could see just the slight illumination from underneath it, from the city lights coming up on the bottom of it. And no sound whatsoever, just a straight, slow glide and Funny thing, I don't think I said this on Rob's show either, but the funny thing was, is as soon as I realized, oh my gosh, I think I saw a UFO, I ran back inside of my work and I called the police station to ask them if anybody else had seen it. And <laughs> it couldn't have been any more trite. The woman that answered the phone <laughs> at the police station said to me, no, we haven't got any other calls. Maybe it was a weather balloon. Nice. And I thought, oh... 
come on. Like, she obviously knew UFO stories to give that response. <laughs> right. Like, she had watched an episode of Unsolved Mysteries or Sightings or something and or, or read a book about Roswell to know that, say, tell this guy it's a weather balloon. Um, the next time I saw a UFO, I was, it was on a busy street, actually. It was the middle of the day downtown uh the city that i live i was out having a break again smoking a cigarette and this weird silver teardrop came down out of the clouds and just hung over the street and i was running up to people trying to get them to look at it and for some reason no one would look at it and i was kind of manically running down the street just saying like could you turn around and look at that just turn look at that just look up and people would look at me and then think i was crazy you know so they just kept walking but i couldn't get anybody on the street to turn around and look at this thing and finally like it, it went back up into the clouds and i looked down about a block and a half and there was a girl standing on a corner and she was just like slack-jawed staring up at, at the sky and, and i ran down to her and i was like did you see that did you see that and she was like yeah i did she's like oh my gosh i'm, I'm glad somebody else saw it I, I was trying to get all these people to look and no one would look at it and we just kind of sat there and i told her that that's what I had been doing. Like, I'm trying to get people to look at it. No one would look. Why wouldn't they look? And we just kind of stood there for a minute. And then what do you do? You just go on with the rest of your day. And it just reinforced this notion that, you know, either people are too busy or they just think everyone's crazy or there's some type of phenomenon that just keeps certain people from seeing it. Well, and, you know, mo both of your situations right there, you were outside smoking. It just made me wonder if it was actually a cigarette you were smoking or maybe something else. Or I don't do any drugs. <laughs> well, caffeine and nicotine. Those are my two drugs. And alcohol. But, uh, I mean, that's it's, – it's, it's really interesting to me that – there is this phenomena, you know, one of the things uh, when I encounter something that seems strange to me, I start to research it. And one of the things that's interesting is that in a lot of UFO cases, there are people who see it. I mean, they'll be in the same car and one person will see it and the rest of the people will refuse to look that someone will see something in a crowd of people and no one else will look at it. And, and that's a repeating phenomenon that happens in a lot of UFO cases that people just for some reason, like I said, it seems like some people have some type of block on them to where they don't want to see it or they, they just don't know that they can see it. Oh, and, and that's something I was unfamiliar with until just now that that was even something that that was happening out there that some people just didn't see even being in the same car. That's uh, yeah, that's an odd a, phenomena. There's a there's a lot of really weird stuff about UFOs that people for some reason I don't know why I talk about everything at my lectures, but there's a lot of weird stuff that people talk about with UFOs that I never hear anyone talk about. There's a huge number of people who have experienced what they think is uh, alien abductions or that they have some kind of close encounter of the third kind where they actually see an alien or they see a ship land and aliens get off. And one of the things that never gets talked about, and I, it's because it's weird, I mean, the whole experience itself is weird. So to think that there's something weirder <laughs> that isn't discussed, something that happens in a great number of cases is that the person who experiences seeing an alien or being abducted by an alien or taken on an alien craft, they also have a memory of seeing someone 
in some type of historical military uniform. So like a, a, a French Revolution outfit, an American Civil War outfit. Um, this is something that happens a lot. But because it's so strange, UFO researchers don't talk about it. Huh. I, I mean, like I said, that's all news to me. So, I mean, that's we're, I feel like we're breaking some ground here. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, I mean, like I said, that's why I, that's why I love weirdness. You know, uh, when I talk about, you know, Bigfoot, one of the things, you know, people go out into the woods, they see Bigfoot, that's a massive experience. And so they talk about seeing Bigfoot. But when you talk to a lot of people who have had a Bigfoot encounter and you drill down into their story and you really sit down with them and get them to talk through the whole day, the whole night, whenever it was that they saw it, and you start hours before and go to hours after, you know, they saw this creature, a lot of the time when you talk to them, they will talk about hearing a loud pop sound either in their head or physically outside of their body. They'll hear a loud popping sound. They'll see a bright flash that's usually light green or dark green. But because they see Bigfoot, they don't think it's related, and, and so they don't even talk about it. Some, you'll hear somebody say, yeah, I was out in the woods, and I was walking through the woods, and, and someone threw a firecracker or something, and then like 15 minutes later, I saw Bigfoot. He was standing there, and then I tried to run after him, and then... And, and you go, what about that firecracker? What, like, did you find the person who threw that? No, it's just the sound that I heard. Like, but they, and they don't realize that They're maybe that has something to do with Bigfoot. You know, it's, it's funny. We were at uh, Scarefest, and I was out back, and I was talking to Steve Coles. And I brought up the fact, because Steve's a very well-known you know, Bigfoot expert. Sure. And I brought up to him. Hey, what do you think about the fact that that uh, some people think Bigfoot could be an alien? And the look that he gave me <laughs> as he went into how that could not even be possible. But it was a fascinating conversation, and he had a thousand different reasons why there's no possible way that that, that could happen. But I'm, you know, I've heard more and more over the last couple of years of the theory that 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 Bigfoot actually could be some type of alien uh, incarnation. Well, see, that's the what's weird is that, you know, so this is why I always I was said earlier, like, I want people to diversify their weirdness. Like UFO people don't like to talk to Bigfoot people. Bigfoot people think ghost people are crazy. Ghost people think that UFO people are crazy. Like no one talks to each other. When if we talk to each other like Bigfoot doesn't have to be just one thing. It doesn't have to be just a large hominid that's roaming through the forest. It can be that, but it, there can also be other things that, again, because of people's perspectives, they don't understand what they're seeing. The, the original legends of Sasquatch are of a nature spirit, an elemental, which is more closely related to ghosts than it is to a giant ape walking through the forest. Now, there could be both of those things. There could also be biological scout ships you know there could be aliens that can exist on our planet so they have created something that can breathe air and eat our vegetation and they set it down to gather information and that can exist too so i mean when you know a lot of times i'll talk to people i know a lot of bigfooters who you know it's only a large ape it's only a, a relic hominid it's only a physical creature I mean, that's limiting themselves on how they're thinking about this phenomenon. It's fine to, to 
want to find that one aspect of Bigfoot. I have no trouble with if that's what you want to do. But what I want to do is I want to find out what all of these different experiences are and how they're related. Well, and like, like you said, that's when you put yourself in that little box and you don't think outside the box, you really do limit yourself. Sure. I mean, in Michigan, we have what's called the dog man, yep. which is a giant upright walking dog, right? Now, if you were out in the woods and you saw a seven foot tall, hairy thing moving through the woods and you had never heard of dog man before, you would tell people that you saw Bigfoot. Yep. Yep. And that, and you, you there's all that stuff that, you know, the beast of Bray road, the, the yep. dog man, you know, all these werewolf type sightings, you know, throughout Wisconsin and, but you're right. They're probably, you know, if people are seeing these things, they're probably all from the same family or the same thing. Yeah. Or, I mean, again, they can be different, but similar enough to confuse us from our own individual perspectives. I mean, if you, maybe they're, we don't know what aliens look like. Aliens, there might be a race of aliens that's eight feet tall and covered with hair. I mean, that's a possibility. And so if you saw an eight foot tall, hairy creature and you didn't know what aliens looked like, but you've heard stories about Bigfoot, you will call it Bigfoot. Yep. I mean, that makes sense. I mean, it's like, it's like we talked about earlier. It's all about the perspective. Yep, absolutely. So let's jump on a couple of things. I, I do want to touch, like I said, there's so many different aspects of your career that I find amazing. And, and I love the fact that you've been on all these shows that I've loved. Sightings was one of the first real shows out there that that talked about the paranormal and stuff like that. You know, that's incredible, did some of it, but Sightings was the big one for me growing up. I loved that show, and, and I love the fact that you were on that. And Unsolved Mysteries, uh, just to name a couple, that you've had the privilege of working on. Um, tell me a little bit about how you got started into those aspects of your career. So uh, when I started to go to college, I thought that I would be a history teacher that specialized in folklore. And so I was nearing the beginning of my second year, and I got a call from NBC. Uh, they needed a researcher for the show called Unsolved Mysteries. They were, at the time, mostly murder mysteries and missing person stories. And they were going to move into a direction of more paranormal ghost hauntings, that type of thing. And they asked if I wanted to be a researcher on the show. And I said, yes. And I never really kind of looked back. Uh, after I left unsolved there in the mid nineties, early to mid nineties, there was all of a sudden a lot of documentaries and some shows being done and who needed research. And since I had already this kind of provenance with, unsolved mysteries i'd get kind of snatched up by new shows and that's where sightings came in you know they needed someone who could do the research and was still kind of young enough and hip enough to get it and give them some weird information uh, if you would have told me though like i thought for sure by the time the late 90s came around i thought my career was kind of dead i thought i'd just be doing lectures to 14 people in a library for the rest of my life but all of a sudden, in 2002, 2003, ghost shows came around. And now you've got all of these shows that need research. And here I am at the time, you know, I was only, by that time, I was only 33. And 
I had file cabinets from, you know, 15 years of doing research. And so all of a sudden I wind up working on a lot of the shows. What's funny is in the early 2000s working on television shows, I didn't know if they were going to suck really bad or be really good. So a lot of the time when you work on a show, they'll have you sign a non-disclosure agreement so that you can't talk about the television show. I would actually have the television show sign a non-disclosure agreement so they couldn't say I worked on it because I didn't know if the show was going <laughs> to suck or not. And if it sucked, I didn't want my name attached to it. You know, if they were going to pay me, that's fine. But I, but don't put my name in the credits. Uh, and then eventually, you know, people in the television industry, they say, you know, do you want to be on camera for this next one? And at some point you just say, yeah, and do it and see what happens. And uh, the majority of the time it's not great. But it, it makes you makes me able to speak to larger and larger groups of people, which is what I really love to do. Well, no, I've, I've seen you on Paranormal Lockdown. I thought you were great on there. And I believe you were on camera in Paranormal State, too, um, yep. back in the early days, which I love. That was one of the, the ghost shows that I loved early on. Um, so, I mean, I thought that was just a cool setup the way that was that was. Um, put out there, you know, group of college kids was, putting together. Yeah, that show was great because it had this kind of running narrative. You could, like, really get to know the people on the show. It was almost like a soap opera. Mm -hmm. stuff. So I got a couple of uh, requests. We're going to end with the George Bush thing. I will say that to the end because that, I think that's a great <laughs> thing to end on. But right. I had a listener uh, by the name of Christy tell me that she's seen you a couple of times uh, at the Stanley Hotel. And she said that I should get you to tell the story uh, about, she said, a diner and a necklace that you had a really cool story. So I don't know if you'll know what I'm talking about, but I'm not sure what the story is. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll tell you the diner story and then the necklace story. I do a, a, a very sporadic podcast called The Realm of the Weird. And it's the strangest stories, all that, you know, I've. I've had over the past 30 years and I turn them into these little 15 minute vignettes that are kind of like the twilight zone, like an old time radio show. And just, I, I let people hear real recordings on it and, and all of the story is drawn from my notes. Uh, so if they go to realm, if you go to realm of the you can find both of these stories, but this is the, the short version of the diner story. Uh, years, this is probably now, 11 years ago, I went to a paranormal convention in Illinois, went down, was hanging out, got there on Friday, and Saturday is when the big event was going to happen. Uh, I was driving from the hotel to the event. Someone sideswiped my car, totaled out my truck. Uh, I had it towed away and then walked the quarter of a mile to the location to the paranormal convention, spent the night, whatever, <clears throat> and then had someone drive me back to the hotel on Saturday night. So on Sunday, the place that towed my truck told me that they weren't going to be able to have it fixed for like three or four days. It's a very small town in Illinois, so I had to take some days off work, and I just called work, told them I wouldn't be in until I had my car done. But because the convention was over, the hotel cleared out. So in this 200-room hotel, I'm the only person on Sunday night that's in this hotel, except for the guy working the front desk and one maid. So on Monday, I asked him, is there any place to eat around here? 
And he said, yeah, you know, you go out the back of the hotel, you go left when you go here, you go right when you go here, there's a golf course, you go left, go around there, and there's a diner. So this is the middle of winter. There's huge snowstorms going on. I had to truck out. I go out the back of the hotel. I follow his directions as much as I can. I get to the golf course. I find this river. And I just, I mean, it's just blinding snow. Finally, I see the diner. I go in. There's a couple people in there. I order my food. I eat walk back to the hotel, don't think anything about it. Next day, just stayed in, didn't do anything. Second day, or third day, I go back out into the snowstorm, wander through this just, it, I mean, it was coming down. There's that type of snow, the big snowflakes, and, and everything is just white. It's just a complete whiteout. I find the diner, I go back in. Same people are there as the last time I was there. I order more food eat, walk back to the hotel, wake up the next morning, my truck has been delivered. I get in my truck, pay up my bill, and then I decide I'm going to go back to that diner for one last meal, and then I'll go home. So I start driving around the roads, up and down the roads. I drive around for about 45 minutes, and I can't find it anywhere. And I think to myself, you know, I've been on foot, and I've kind of been cutting through this golf course and and this state land and so maybe the roads just aren't leading me in the right direction so i drive back to the hotel and i ask the guy working at the front desk how now that i'm driving how do i get back to that diner and he goes okay you know come around the back parking lot and you go left and you go right and i said listen i've been walking when i get to the river by the golf course which direction do i go and he looks at me gives me this really weird look and he says the river by the golf course he's like that's the wrong direction there's nothing over there but state land and I said no there's a, a diner over there I've, I've eaten at it twice and he goes if you're by the river and the golf course there's nothing over there it's, it's only state land there's nothing over there the diner that I'm talking about is in the complete opposite direction so I get back in my truck I drive to where he's talking about that's not the diner that I've been eating at. I've never seen that diner before in my life. I go back and try and trace my route. I get out of the truck. I start walking around in the snow. And where I have eaten twice in the past four days does not exist. Wow. <laughs> never has. <laughs> Was now, I remember the taste of the pancakes. I paid someone American money for pancakes. And that place does not exist. It has not existed. I've, since that time, talked to people who have lived in that city their whole lives. There's never been a diner there. Uh, I've, you know, Google, I, every now and then, still to this day, I Google Earth it to look and see, and it's just state land where I can, I can see from Google Earth. I can, I can trace my own path as to how I walked and where I walked to, and there's nothing over there but state land. That's awesome. That's some Twilight Zone stuff there. Very much so. So I, I, I did that as an episode of Realm of the Weird. And at the end of the episode, I told people, you know, I, I do remember the names of the two people that I talked to who were in the diner. Uh, if you know who those people are, could someone email me or give me a call so that I know I'm not completely insane? <laughs> and a few years went by with that episode just sitting out there. And eventually I got an email from a guy who lives in Illinois. And he said, you know, I stumbled across your podcast and someone told me it was really weird and I needed to listen to it. But is this a picture of the woman that you saw? And he had scanned a picture and sent it in the email. 
And I said, that's her. And he said, that's my grandmother. And I, we were, you know, chat back and forth on chat program. And I said, uh, well, that's great because it means I'm not crazy. And he said, no, that's my grandmother. She died in 1973. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I don't know what the hell happened. I mean, you can call it a time slip or that I slipped through into an alternate version of Earth, something. But one of the weirdest, strangest to this day, I still can't wrap my head around what happened. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know where to begin to try to explain what would happen. I, I was thinking time slip the same time you said time slip. Yeah, something. But the, the problem is, is that there's never been a diner there, so it can't be a time slip. Yeah, that's true. Like if, it, if it was a time slip, then someone would have remembered there being a diner there. There's only ever been state land there. So I have no freaking clue what happened. All right, let's move on to this next question, because <laughs> that's too much for me to try to... Between that and Stephen Hawking passing in the same day, that's too much for my mind to comprehend. Stephen Hawking, born on the day that Galileo died, died on the day that Einstein was born. See, there's, there's all there's <laughs> coincidence. Yeah, um, coincidence. See, it all goes full circle. So Katie wants to know that if someone wanted to get into paranormal investigating, what advice would you give somebody on how to get started? You know, it really got to be how you want to start. So, like, find that one aspect of paranormal phenomena that interests you the most and read as much as you can about it and talk to as many people as you can about it. I mean, that's really where you have to start is just growing your own internal knowledge. And there's a lot of reflectivity that I think needs to be done. There's a lot of sit alone and ask yourself really weird questions about what you're thinking about. Uh, you know, whatever you think of is going to be good, but you should challenge how you're thinking about something. You know, when, when I talk to people and do lectures and they say, like, I heard a ghost voice, a lot of the times I'll ask them, how does a ghost have a voice? Like, the only reason I have a <laughs> voice is because I have lungs and a larynx and a throat and tongue and lips, and I can push air and make air move and it makes a wave and then it bounces off an ear. That's how a, a voice is made. Now, as far as we know, ghosts being the kind of ethereal creatures we think they are, they don't have lungs and a larynx and they don't push air with their lips and their tongue. So how are they making a voice? How are you hearing it? If, if it's not waves moving through the air to make sound, how is your ear hearing? It? I mean, there's a lot of self-questioning of what you believe and how you believe it that I think needs to be done if you're going to be a paranormal investigator. And then the other thing is, too, is you've got to have, a, at least in my opinion, a very well-rounded idea of all of the things that you're going to be dealing with. So not only do you need to read about ghosts, but you do need to read about neurobiology and neuroscience, and you need to know a little bit of, of, of physics and mathematics. You need to know a little bit about cosmology and space and the weather. Uh, it's, a, it's an endless octopus that I feel like you really need if you're going to try and traverse this landscape. Well, that's, I mean, it, it pretty much puts it all in a nutshell. I mean, but you're you're right. It's it, in it, the bottom line is you got to do the part that you're most fascinated with to get started. I think. Yeah, for sure. And you know, there are people who 
want to run around in the dark with flashlights and, and get scared, that's fine. If that's what you want, that's absolutely fine. If you want to research and just bury yourself in books and never go out in the field, that's fine too. If you want to do both of those things, that's fine too. You have to figure out what it is about the phenomena that you're passionate about that you're not going to become not passionate about. And if it doesn't conform to the way that, you know, if you, I know so many people over the past 30 years that get really interested in ghosts and then they read about it and they study it for four or five years, six years, seven years, 10 years. And when it doesn't conform to the way that they think about it, they get frustrated, they give up. Well, it's not what I thought. And then they just stop this phenomena all of these weird phenomena that we deal with all the time they're going to be stranger than you think they are and you shouldn't let that deter you from continuing to explore them it's funny that you you said that exactly the way you did because i was talking to a former paranormal investigator and he told me that after five years of doing it he was frustrated because he had more questions now than he did before he started and yeah, that, absolutely. I have way more questions now after 30 years than I ever had when I started. When I started, I was just looking for ghosts. Now I'm all mixed up with interdimensional Bigfoots and reptilians that might be disguised as ethereal, ghostly-like manifestations from the future. Like it, it gets weirder and stranger, and there's deeper philosophical questions that you run across. And how does your consciousness work? And is, you know... What uh, I was talking on a show recently, it might have even been Rob's when I was talking about, you know, if if massively complex chemical and atomic reactions gave rise to our consciousness, if the reason that we're self-aware is because there's a ton of electrical information moving about inside of our brains, if that's the reason that we're conscious, then that would mean that complex electrical and chemical systems are conscious which leads me to speculate and rhapsodize about the fact that the largest chemical electrical engine that we know of right now in our solar system, the one that's closest to us, is the sun, which is way more complex chemically and atomically than our brain. So why is the sun not conscious or is the sun conscious, but it's just a consciousness so much different from ours that we don't recognize that it's conscious. But then you have to ask yourself, why, if you take children from across the world of all ages and all races and all religions and you tell them to draw a picture of the sun, they will draw the sun, but they'll put a face in the middle of it as if children know that the sun is alive. Uh, it's something I've never thought about, but you're right. Every kid draws a face on the sun. Yep. Uh, man, it's going to be hard for me to sleep tonight. You've given me so much to think about. <laughs> I can't wait to hear how you answer this because this is actually my favorite question of the ones the listeners sent. You being a, a master researcher, Tina wants to know what's the most interesting or scary thing that you've ever done in the name of research? Um, I don't get scared that much. Uh, the most, when I first really in the early 90s, uh, I really wanted to know what was going on with my brain. And so I took a lot of classes 
while I was working for Unsolved, even though I wasn't going to college, I took a lot of classes on just the brain itself and human psychology. I did things like I became a, magi- a magician. I joined like magician's guild so I could learn, you know, the hand is faster than the eye. How can my brain be t- tricked? And I did flotation tanks for, you know, hours on end. I think the longest I was ever in an isolation tank was about 20 hours, maybe a little less, 17. I did the scariest, weirdest thing I ever did for research was I did a sleep deprivation experiment where they monitored me for about 37 hours and you're not allowed to sleep you're not allowed to have micro sleeps there's a a lot of times when you're saying that you're staying awake you're actually doing these little micro sleeps which last you know one or two seconds and you don't even realize that you've fallen asleep but when you're doing a sleep study they keep you from doing that and i lost track of time at a certain point and i became uh very engulfed in the hallucinogenic world that happens to your brain when you're sleep deprived. And I was very frightened at a certain point because reality was very much falling away from me uh, right near the end of the experiment. But after about 30 hours, uh, I didn't know who was real and who wasn't real. I was having conversations with people that weren't there. And when I was done, when, you know, someone has to come and pick you up, they obviously don't let you drive home. The doctor told me, you know, you're going to go home and you're really tired and you're going to lay in bed and you're not going to be able to sleep and you're going to think that you're broken and that you'll never sleep ever again. He goes, don't worry about it. You'll fall asleep. And I was like, no way. I'm going home and I'm falling asleep right now. <laughs> and I drove home and laid down in bed and could not sleep. And I thought, holy shit, I'm broken. Like, I'm not going to be able to ever sleep again. And as soon as I got through that thought, probably within five or 10 minutes, I fell asleep. I woke up eight hours later and I was perfectly back to normal. Uh, but those few last hours of that experiment were probably the, one of the most harrowing situations that I've ever done for research. See, I just knew there was going to be a good story coming out of that as soon as I saw the question. <laughs> this is the last question I got for you. Don't ever stay awake that long. I'm telling you right now. I, I, at my age, I'm able to barely stay up past 10 o'clock. I'm sitting here yawning <laughs> now. <laughs> so Haley wants to know, has there ever been a time where you felt like an entity has attached itself to you? And if so, is it still with you? Or if not, how do you get rid of something like that? Uh, you know, one of the really great things uh, that I have, kind of going for me is that when I started all of this strangeness, I got to meet a lot of the kind of old timey big wigs in our field. And one of them was Hans Holzer, who's kind of the grandfather of ghost hunters. And I was very concerned at that time as a young man with having attachments and having things glom onto me and follow me home. And he taught me this thing. He said, listen, he said, you just you have to make it known that nothing can follow you home and that your home is yours. And so every time you walk into your house where you live, even decide to take the trash out, every time you come back in, just say to yourself really quickly, this is my house and mean it. And you'll build a force field up around your house and nothing will be able to get in. Or when you start investigating, just take a fraction of a second and forcefully think to yourself before you start investigating nothing will attach itself to me 
And you do, you build a barrier around yourself. And after doing it for almost 30 years, I've never had an attachment. Uh, I've never had anything try and follow me. Uh, I mean, I, stuff might have tried to follow me, but it doesn't, it can't attach to me and it, it can't get in my house. So I wouldn't really know. Uh, the kids in my neighborhood over the past six or seven years that I've lived in this house, the kids in my neighborhood and some of my adult neighbors have told me that they see people standing on the roof of my house at night, which is interesting. Uh, but uh, nothing gets in my house and nothing's ever attached itself to me. And I really do think it's more just the force of your own will keeping that stuff at bay. Fascinating answer. I didn't expect that either. So this is this has been such a fun interview for me because I feel like out of every interview that I've done, I've learned more on this one or have been given different ways to look that I hadn't thought about in so many different aspects. So I appreciate you challenging <laughs> all of our minds out there. Thanks. I like throwing seeds out there. I'm just planting ideas. And the only reason, listen, it's not altruistic. The only reason I do it is because I want people to think about stuff that I can't think about and then bring it back to me and say, well, what about this? Because I don't know everything, uh, but I want to know. And the only way I can know is by working and thinking and talking to other people because together we construct stuff that we can't do by ourselves. All right. So, Tell me the George Bush story, because I, I love the story, and then we're going to close with you telling everybody how they can catch up with the 17,000 things that you do on a yearly basis. <laughs> so in 2000, I ran for mayor of my hometown, Royal Oak, Michigan. And when you run for mayor or any public office, they always want you to meet all the other candidates, whether they're from the state level or the federal level or the county level, just so that they can have a picture of you with that person in case you both win, and then they can put that in the newspaper. Well, the year that I was running for mayor was the year that George W. Bush announced that he was going to run for president. And they announced that he was going to do a whistle-stop tour to meet some voters in Royal Oak. And because I was running for mayor there would be this kind of photo op press moment where the three mayoral candidates would get a moment with him. So he showed up at this Coney Island and uh, there were a lot of people there just to see him and talk to him. And then the three mayoral candidates and some of the uh, people who were running for city commission were there too. And there were a lot of people and I didn't really want to get involved with the huge mess of people that were all swamping him and trying to get his autograph and stuff. So I went outside and I, I knew that I'd get a moment with him at the end. So I was sit talking to this CNN crew that was following him around. And I said to them, so how's this been? You know, has it been exciting? What have you guys been doing? And there's this guy holding a boom microphone. And he kind of looks at me and he says, man, it's, it's boring. These things are always boring. Nothing's going to happen. And I said, well, I'm about to talk to him, and I'm going to ask him about UFOs. And his eyes lit up, and he's like, great. Like, <laughs> finally, something that we can film. So the event gets over, and he comes out, and the mayoral candidates are lined up, and he goes to the first guy and asks him his question. Second guy asks him his question, and then W. Bush comes up to me, and he looks at me and kind of gives me that George W. thing. He's like, what can I do for you? And... I said, listen, if you're willing, if you're going to become president of the United States, would you be willing to release any and all information that the government has regarding unidentified flying objects? 
And by the time I got objects out of my mouth, security had grabbed my shoulders, Secret Service and the Texas Rangers pulled me to the back of the crowd, they spun him around, they pushed him in his car, he zoomed off, and they threw me at the feet of the CNN crew I'd been talking to earlier. And the guy with the boom microphone looks down at me and goes, well, that was the wrong fucking question. That is like that is so damn funny. <laughs> it was it was one of those moments because you know, and people say like, well, do you think that that he did that because he knew something about UFOs or he didn't want to talk about UFOs? The reality of the situation is, they didn't want him to be near a crazy person. And when someone starts talking about UFOs to a presidential candidate, their immediate instinct is. They've got a lunatic on their hands. Get him away from the president, the guy who might be president. Um, but it's interesting because, you know, Bush, what I was talking about earlier, I don't think that presidents really know about UFOs. But the Bush family, I mean, you're not talking about just a president. You're talking about the son of someone who was president. And Bush Sr., not only being president and a vice president, was also the head of the CIA. You know, he was a, C- a career CIA agent for a long time and then head of the CIA. So I would I would feel like George Herbert Walker Bush probably did know something if there was something to know about UFOs, and I don't know how well he would have kept that information away from his children. Well, John, this has been so much fun. I hate for it to end, but... Um, I guess all things must come to an end. Is there one spot where people can find out all the different podcasts that you're involved with and lectures and all that? Is everything kind of gathered in one spot? Uh, You know, I've tried to make it as easy for everybody as possible. My website is Weird Lectures. You can get through a lot of the stuff. You can find Realm of the Weird on there. I have another podcast called Real Lost. You can find that through weirdlectures.com. Or you can just follow me on Twitter, John E. L. Tenney. Instagram is John E. L. Tenney. Facebook is John E. L. Tenney. And I tell people all the time, if you go to Google and you just type T-E-N-N-E-Y and then weirdo and hit search, it's all me and just follow it till you're insane. There you go. Well, I, I, And this is going to show that I didn't do my proper research, but somebody actually asked me uh, earlier and I didn't know the answer and then I got tied up, didn't, didn't get to look. What does the E-L stand for? Uh, Elmer Leonard. So you got two so, two middle names. I do. I'm the last. Uh, I'm the last person in my family. The the last in my line, my family tree. So my dad named me uh, after him. His name is John. His father's name was Elmer, and his grandfather's name was Leonard. So he gave me all of the the male names that I could handle, since I'm the last one. John, thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been so much fun. And and uh, do you have any events coming up soon? I know you're doing some stuff with uh, with Amy's project that she's got out there. And um, I know, I think, are you going on the cruise too? Is that something you're doing? Yep, I'm going on the cruise. If they go to weirdlectures.com, there's an events page. And just click on that, and I update it all the time with the events and where I'll be. And if people have an event they want me at, just tell the event people to contact me or Lindsay at center stage and uh, we'll put something together. Brother, thank you so much for coming on. I hope to talk to you in the near future. Oh, thanks for having me. I had a lot of fun. I appreciate it, man.
See, how do you not love that guy after listening to that? He is absolutely hilarious. He's just fun. He's a great speaker. We did that. It's like an hour and 15-minute interview. I didn't have to edit anything. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Good job. Usually I got at least edit my screw-ups out. Yeah, but. you sure do. All right, so we promised that we would read the uh, Robert Tadal letters. Now, like I said, they keep all these at the, at the museum down in Key West. They keep all of these letters on file. So there's like a screen when you go to see Robert. There is a screen that you can uh, look at and see all these letters. Oh, yeah, I would love to do that. It's cool. Now, here's the deal. Robert the doll has a fascination, so people want to go see him. And you want to get your picture made with him, as you would think. You have to ask Robert's permission. I don't know how he tells you yes or no. Well, yeah. But you're supposed to ask his permission. And and the, the legend is that people who ridicule him or take pictures without asking or somehow make any type of, of uh, disrespectful uh, remarks toward him, they get hit with a lot of bad luck. So much to the point that they write these letters asking for forgiveness and trying to right the ship, so to speak. So this is what we're going to read you, three of these letters that I've got. Here's the first one. Dear Robert, you've probably received many letters like this from people like me, people who were sure that there was no such thing as a Robert the Doll curse. You see, it's easy to act tough and try to impress your friends by being disrespectful. And unfortunately, this is the camp that I find myself in. My name is Dan Schultz. Back in 2009, we visited the East Martello Museum. The entire purpose of this visit was to come and meet you. We have walked by your old house multiple times over the years and have always wanted to visit you at the museum. Our visit was fun and informative, and seeing you was the best part. I'm not sure what made me act like a jerk to you. I didn't ask for your permission to take your picture, and I openly mocked you. Like I said, I was just trying to be funny and impress the people I was visiting with. I in no way actually meant what I said, and I realize now I made a big mistake. Since that day in late 2009, we had a run of bad luck. I've had multiple health issues. I had a near-death experience with anemia. We had family members and pets die and bad luck with our finances that ended in us filing for bankruptcy and still having financial difficulties today. The purpose of this letter is to profoundly apologize and ask for your forgiveness. I've talked about this event on popular uh, travel podcasts that I'm the co-host on. A podcast is a radio show that people can hear on their computers, in case you don't know, and will always speak with high respect of you. Again, Robert, please accept my sincere apologies. And if you see fit to forgive in the bad luck, I would appreciate it as would my family, Dan Schultz, West Palm Beach, Florida. This note stuck on it says, please post where Robert the dog can see this. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) You know, and and I'm not trying to debunk anything, but over a period of years, you're going to have pets die. You're going to have family members die. You're going to, I can't. I don't know how they just completely blame everything that goes wrong. Well, it's just bad timing, I guess. I mean, we all have bad luck. Yeah, of course. And it's just a matter of what you're going to blame it on. But mm-hmm. he felt like the, most but of his did, came yeah. from Robert. Well, bless his heart. Here's the second story. This one's a, uh, uh, letter. This one's a little shorter. Robert, sorry I did not ask out loud to take your photo. Since then, my husband lost his diamond ring, one carat. I tore my rotator cuff, and my daughter's wedding was canceled. All happened before I returned home. Please stop the curse. I'm truly sorry. And life is tough enough. Sincerely, Kathy. Oh, my goodness. 
So he lost a diamond carrot. Daughter canceled a wedding. And she tore a rotator cuff all before they even got home. That's crazy. <laughs> now, what? that one I can go along with a little more well, yeah, than the other yeah, what the heck? So here's the third one. This one's kind of my favorite. Dear Robert, I'm very sorry for not asking your permission to take your picture while visiting the museum last week. Since I have taken your picture without permission, many strange things have happened to me. While driving back from the Keys, a deer ran out in front of my car. We had to swerve to avoid hitting it and ran off the road. We almost hit a tree. Two days later, we had a small kitchen fire. Also, we've been hearing childlike giggles from our basement. Last night, I was in the home all alone. I heard a voice coming from the basement. When I went to investigate, I tripped and fell down the bottom three stairs. I got up to run out, but the door was locked. My husband said that I probably turned the lock by myself without even thinking about it and locked myself in the basement. But honestly, Robert, we both know the truth. Please accept my deepest apology for taking your picture without asking. Also, please accept my daughter's apology for sticking her tongue out at you and making fun of you. <laughs> Sincerely, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> oh. So what do you think? Is it is it the case that a doll could actually have a curse on it? And how did this doll get a curse on it if it didn't come the way that people think no. from the uh, Bohemian slaves? Or servants, I should say, not yeah. slaves. I don't know. I mean, there's a... There's a lot of coincidences for sure, but maybe it's true. I I don't know how the dog was cursed, um, but I mean it's sh- I mean it sounds like it was, and it yeah. sounds like it could provoke evil on you. I mean, I mean you've got a lot of people stating if you go back from the beginning, you've got a lot of people from all the accounts of Robert's family. Yeah, uh, you've got the accounts of his wife. Mm-hmm. You've got the lady who bought the house. That's what I'm saying. There's too many. All there's the people too much in the museum. Stuff. Yeah. I mean, I I'm, can kind of believe it myself. I mean, I don't know about the whole people writing letters and curses of because you don't ask to take a picture. That seems completely random. From it, it's a lot like the Bodie. Remember, we did the story of Bodie, the uh, the ghost town. That people would grab rocks or bottles and oh, stuff yeah, like and that take and with take it. it, yeah. And then they would have issues like that. It's a very similar. It is, but you that. know, but when you think about this lady said, or that guy said, all that happened before he even got home. I mean, that's kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's three big, big things. But the 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 hearing the stuff in the house and the footsteps and the furniture being turned over and all that stuff. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. I'm... And of course, that could be you know as. But he was still a little young, but we really don't know the age that all this happened. I mean, if he was in uh, puberty age, I mean, that could be mm-hmm. typical poltergeist-type activity that he was, you know, re- you know, causing himself. Yeah, I'd say I'm 75% positive it was a doll. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Guys, we appreciate you tuning in to us every week. We gave you a little bonus episode last week. We hope you enjoyed it. And... Uh, and we love you guys. So anytime we can do something for you, we're going to try to do it. Yes. And um, uh, let's see. When's Easter next Sunday? Next, next Sunday. Sunday. So we'll have put the show out. And um, everybody get your Easter baskets ready and dye your eggs, all that good fun stuff. That's what I'm looking forward to doing because I love to do that with my kiddos. And uh, we just want you guys to be safe, love one another. And I hope you guys have a fabulous week. If you don't mind to leave us some reviews on iTunes or anywhere you would like, 
good or bad, we would love to see them. And um, anything else, babe? No, I'm just letting you ramble. Oh, well, visit our merch store and... You're such a professional. <laughs> Long and short of it, guys. Hey, go join our Patreon. Go buy your oh, T-shirts yeah, that was and it. stuff. That was it. Uh, man, we're almost sold out of the second Waverly tour. I know. Oh my god, that thing is approaching. Yeah, there was like eight tickets left when I looked the other day. The and I, we might as well say that the live event for Waverly is sold out. Yes. Because and our Ohio or our Ohio things coming up really quick. Yep, absolutely. The Brohau is in three weeks. There's still, I think, 20 tickets left for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, the, the Waverly Louisville show, there's two tickets left. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much done. Hopefully by then it won't be snowing. Yeah. What the hell, Mother Nature's tripping. Yeah, absolutely not. Then the biggest event of all that we got coming on is Potter and Love in August. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Me too. So here's the, the details on that. Potter and Love is August 10th, 11th, and 12th of this year. At the Intercontinental Hotel, it's right on the edge of the French Quarter, so it's only like five minutes from all the the good stuff, the cool walking stuff. Listeners can get tickets, book hotel rooms, and see which shows will be there by visiting www.pottern.love. So that's where you gotta go to www.pottern.love. Uh, we actually negotiated a room rate of $129 a night for the hotel, so that's phenomenal. That's I can't even tell you how cheap that is. For hotels in the in the oh, uh, yeah. the fifth quarter, so go to the website, check out the ticket prices and stuff, and when you find the tickets that you want, put in hillbilly as the code when you check out, and you'll save you a little bit of money. Actually, so, I think it's ten percent. Yeah, it sounds like it. it. Sounds like a great deal to me. Yep. So go check it out, and uh, hopefully we'll see you in August in the Big Easy. In the big pot of love. We'll see you guys next week. Hey, Hillbillies, if you guys enjoy what we do here on the show every week and appreciate all the hard work we put into it, consider being one of our Patreon supporters. All you got to do is go to our website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com, click on the tab for donations, and you'll see the Patreon link right there. Click on it, and you can go to our Patreon page. Then you will have a decision to make. You can choose the $1 the $3, the $5, or the $10 donation. Each one gets you different things a month, but regardless, you get some free stuff. Just check out the bonuses under each tier, and you'll see what you get for free for that month, but you'll get something free regardless. Also, if you'd like to buy any Hillbilly Horror Story merch, you're also in the right place on the website, hillbillyhorrorstories.com. Just click on the store page and see whatever it is that you like. Click on a few links, send a little bit of money, and your item will be on its way. Thank you guys so much for all of your support. We love you, we thank you, and we appreciate you.